This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Jeff Klein. I'm the Executive Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program here at Wharton, and I'm joined via Zoom by my buddy, Ann Greenhall. Ann, <laughs> how are you? I'm good, Jeff. How are you today? Uh, you know, it is Friday. Um, someone, someone said to me yesterday that the only fair question to ask right now is, how are you exactly in this moment? <laughs> what do you think of that? So exactly in this moment, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to Friday uh, and looking forward to uh, just trying to consolidate some of what I've been learning this week into, um, you know, <laughs> into something more concrete. How's that? <laughs> Well, you, you, in fact, told me that you canceled all meetings in order, except for this call, in oh, order yeah. to uh, spend some time reflecting and thinking about Juneteenth. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, um, you know, our, our co-host, Mike Usim, uh is out this week, but I did think that I, I wanted to carry in a conversation that I had with him earlier in the week. Um, we, this will shock you, Anne, but we were talking about leadership. <laughs> Stunning. We were, about, yeah, we were talking about leadership and Mike made a comment that he thought the nature of leadership, um, could be changing right now. And it could be changing from a willingness to, you know, make hard decisions, right? Which we've mm-hmm. talked about, um, time and time again on the show, how it, it seems that, uh, the the further up you go in organizations, the more the difficulty of the problems increases, the problems that reach you, right? The easy ones get solved. Right. But saying it is um, that, that leadership now, um, it wasn't just about making that hard decision once. It was about, or it is becoming about being willing to make that decision over and over and over again. Um, almost on a daily basis. And to me, that's, a, that's kind of a really interesting call to action uh, when, when you think about leadership in that way. Yeah, and the importance also, Jeff, of communicating that decision over and over and over again. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's probably a little bit, um, uh, it's probably maybe, maybe a little bit ironic to make a comment like this on a radio show, but I do feel like, so much of my own leadership right now is simply talking and listening. <laughs> True enough. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's see. Before we go any further, I want to remind uh, our listeners that new episodes of our show premiere every Friday, 9 a.m. Eastern, here on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at SXM Business. So, um, and we've got a um, really interesting show here today, and and you know the the role of brands in you know certainly American society, global society um, are you know have maybe never been more important, and and the yeah 
conversation that we're going to have today um, is with our guest, Emily Hayward, who spent her career helping new companies and established companies um, with their brands. And, and she's offering some award-winning advice in her new book, Obsessed, Building a Brand People Love from Day One. So Emily, welcome to Leadership in Action. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So if I can, let me just um, tell listeners a little bit more about you. Um, you are the founder and the chief brand officer at Red Antler, uh, and that's a brand company for startups and new ventures, and you work closely with founders to develop purposeful and strategic visions for their startups. You've led branding efforts um, for top companies like Casper, Allbirds, and Boxed, and um, you were, and Red Antler was, um, recently named a Fast Company's list of most innovative companies in marketing. And then, this is the last thing I'll say, we'll get, get your voice into this conversation, um, but I personally love it, and, and our program director, Patty, knows this. When anyone is called a something whisperer, that just <laughs> brings me great joy in the world, and you've been dubbed a cult brand whisperer, so... Um, I'll start out a little playfully. Um, what does one whisper to a brand? <laughs> <laughs> um, be true to yourself. <laughs> That's good. Oh, that is fantastic. That's fantastic. Um, okay, so Emily, um, maybe b before we dig um, into the new book, Obsessed, uh, let, let's just kind of bring you, the person, onto the show. Um, if we were to go back to, you know, Emily in high school, let's say, um, what, what did you think you'd be doing at, at that point? Well, at that point in your life, what did you think you'd be doing now? I did not know. <laughs> so hopefully that's coming to some people out there. But what I did know is that I've always been fascinated by pop culture and not okay. just as a passive viewer. I've always been someone who loves digging into conversations about what we like and why we like it and thinking about trends and those larger movements that unite groups of people across the country and even now across the world and how that happens. You know, how we all love the same show, read the same magazines, um, and then of course, you know, buy the same brands. And, and and thinking back, what what were some of these the the pop culture trends that um, that that originally kind of grabbed you and and illustrated to you that this was something you'd be really interested in? Yeah, well, there were a couple moments in college that I think set the stage for what I do now. And one of them was that I read a magazine article. Um, I believe it was New York Magazine, but I haven't been able to find the article now to verify that. And it was about TiVo. It was when TiVo had first come out. And mm -hmm. the writer was saying, you know, this is going to change everything. And for any younger listeners, TiVo was a, the first DVR, right? Digital video recording. So back when we all watched cable and you had to watch the shows when they came on and watch the commercials, TiVo was obviously set, set out to change all that. And what the writer said that really stuck with me is in 80 years, it's going to be impossible to explain to our grandchildren that we all bought the same brand of detergent. And I started thinking, it is weird. We all buy the same brand of detergent. And why is that? You know, and I, it really struck me the role that commercials play 
in sort of culture um, and the choices that we make. So that was one moment. And another was I read a quote from a woman who's still at it. She's amazing. Her name's Faith Popcorn. And she's a futurist. And her job is, you know, having such a deep understanding of cultural trends and consumer trends that she can actually predict what's next. And that really stuck with me too. I was like, that is just amazing. Um, So at first I was like, maybe I should try to go work for Faith Popcorn or become a futurist. Um, But then obviously set down the path that, that led me here. And um, let, let's talk a, bit, a little bit about that path, if we could. Um, what, uh, what were some of the early, you know, kind of formative professional experiences for you that really drew you to um, branding and brand development? So I was very fortunate that my summers during college, I was able to get internships, which I think, you know, is obviously a very privileged thing to be able to do, and I'm very grateful for it. And the first was, I actually worked at Seventeen Magazine, thinking Mm -hmm. that I wanted to go into print publishing. Looking back, probably good that I didn't go down that path, Um, but had a lot of fun, and sort of knew from that experience that, that maybe going to work at a magazine wasn't entirely for me, even though it was a great experience and a blast. And then the following summer, I got an internship at an ad agency. And it was a little bit just coincidence. You know, truly my goal was to spend the summer in San Francisco. I didn't really know where I was gonna work, but I was able to get connected to this job and fell in love. You know, the second I was in that environment, I knew that I wanted to work in advertising. Um, It was just immediately clear to me. And I think it's because it's so closely tapped into the things that we've just been discussing, right? Sort of how do you understand large groups of people and what unifies them and what makes them tick and how do you craft messages that are going to tap into those feelings and mindsets and, and behaviors. And I just found it fascinating. So after that, went on a much more deliberate career pursuit to get a job in advertising And I graduated college in 2001, Um, definitely a strange time to be moving back to New York and starting work. Um, You know, September 11th, actually my second week of work. Um, So that was an intense start to my career. Um, But, you know, loved job, loved my boss, learned a ton, worked in traditional advertising for about six years where I was working on big global brands and coming up with, you know, national TV campaigns. And then I started to grow frustrated. And my frustration was really stemming, felt like ultimately we were solving the wrong problems. You know, we were being asked to come up with new things to say about old products, some of which had been around for literally a century and hadn't really changed all that much and we couldn't affect the products themselves. And at that point, I started to ask myself, what's next? Mm-hmm. And uh, let me remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Uh, I'm your host, Jeff Klein. This is Anne Greenhall and I speaking with Emily Hayward, the founder and chief brand officer of Red Antler, and author of the new book, Obsessed, Building a Brand People Love from Day One. And let's bring your voice into our conversation. Oh, thank you, Jeff. 
Uh, Emily, I'm just curious, when you look back uh, on your education, which by the way, Emily's been very modest. Let's just say that she has an undergraduate degree from Harvard. And if I got it right in postmodern theory and culture, postmodern theory and culture, and then spent time in the advertising industry in New York, the place to be for advertising. Was there a particular insight that you got as an undergraduate that proved true or untrue <laughs> once you hit the ground in, in New York? Yes, the actual name of my major was social studies. Um, but every time someone hears that, they're like, were you coloring in maps and learning the state capitals? <laughs> um, but what was really cool about this major into whatever you wanted it to be. It was incredibly multidisciplinary and you could really forge your own path. So I took all the classes about consumer culture and postmodern theory and pop culture, like anything that was a little off the beaten path that Harvard offered, I jumped at the chance to take that course. Um, and I also took a lot of classes in philosophy and ethics. Mm. And I think that what was interesting to me was how to merge these two types of thinking. You know, I think I read a lot of, you know, theory about sort of how consumer culture is detrimental to society and rolling right. us. And then at the same time, I was also learning about what's right and wrong and how do we, you know, know how to behave um, in a society. And I hope that the choices I've made in my career are about bringing those things together a little bit more closely. You know, I think that a lot of theory states that consumer culture is sort mm -hmm. of controlling our minds, forcing us all to think the same way. And I'd say that what I've learned through all my years of, you know, talking to consumers and creating things to appeal to consumers, people are much smarter than they're often given credit for and really <laughs> are not being manipulated. I think that people know exactly what they're doing and are making the choices that they want to be making. Oh, I, that's a wonderful response, Emily. And I'm wondering if you can illustrate that with an example from your experience. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, even just sitting in on focus groups in my early days and, you know, we'd show sample ads to people and people were able to feel to the core of what we were trying to communicate. They got it. They got the intention behind the message. Um, and I think that there are examples of brands, not even necessarily brands that I've worked on, that have been incredibly successful by not underestimating the American consumer. You know, an example I always yeah. think of is Target. You know, mm -hmm. Target is a mass retailer, right? Like it's affordable, but they, from the start, recognize that people create great design and clever products. Um, and, you know, I think that even just the, the style of their ads was such a cut above the rest, you know, in terms of competition, and it worked. And I, mm -hmm. you know, I always grow frustrated when, we're meeting with, you know, entrepreneurs or investors who are like, you know, we really want to make sure this doesn't just play on the coasts and that it can reach people across the country. And I'm always like, 
people aren't that different. <laughs> like, you know, you're, you're talking like we're trying to get a different species here. And, you know, in reality, I think there's more that unites us. Yeah. And just to push that a little further, can you pull the ethical thread through? How does yeah, ethics I mean, play into that? So we've been very fortunate um, that during the time that we have been running Red Antler, we get to choose who we work with. And yeah. we're really careful to work with businesses that we feel actually adding value to people's lives. So mm -hmm. again, you know, I think that you can come out with a message and the message is appealing and you're, you know, creating desire for something that ultimately people probably shouldn't spend their money on. And I think going back to what I was saying before, people are going to figure that out eventually. You know, I don't mm -hmm. think that you can fool people forever, but I would rather be putting my creative efforts towards businesses that I think people will gain value from engaging with um, versus, you know, creating a beautiful veneer on top of something that when you scratch the surface, no substance there. Yeah. All right. Maybe just one more for me, then back to Jeff. Do you have sort of a, maybe a tacit or even explicit kind of mental checklist of what are the criteria that help you evaluate whether or not you want to work with a particular company? Absolutely. And it is explicit. Um, so first, and this ties directly to ethics, is we want to work with good people. And I think that there are many incredible entrepreneurs, and it's also an industry that attracts some egos and some people yeah. who are not in it for right reason. And we're very, very careful. Um, you know, occasionally slip through the vetting process, but our goal is work with people that are kind and empathetic and are going to treat our team with respect and grow a company in the right way and, and treat their employees right and build a culture that we'll be proud to have contributed to. So that's one. And then when it comes to the business itself, um, we, we need to work with businesses where there's a substantive improvement on what came before. You know, I think sometimes people will come to us and say, oh, I'm going to launch a business that does something exactly like this other business that's out there in the world, but the brand will be better. And we're not interested in that. You know, mm. there's not mm -hmm. a substantive improvement um, that, that gives this business a reason for being. Like, we don't want the world to just have more junk. Like, there has to be a reason for this <laughs> business to exist that's about improving on what already exists. Otherwise, it's not worth doing. It's not worth our time. That's great. Wonderful. Thank you, Emily. Jeff? I, I realize, you know, we're, we're, we're talking a lot um, about, well, we haven't talked a lot about the new book yet, but we're going to talk a lot. <laughs> yeah, we're warming up. <laughs> yeah, the, the new book is Obsessed, Building a Brand People Love from Day One. Um, and, and I realize as we get into this part of the conversation, um, Emily, I, I should probably ask you what a brand is. Um, I feel <laughs> like one of it's one of these words that you hear constantly in both the popular culture and the business press. Um, but it also, you know, probably invites, um, you know, different interpretations or different definitions. So as, as we start to think about um, building a brand from day one, what should we be thinking about building? I'm so glad you asked because it's definitely a topic where there's a lot of 
perception and false uh, perception. So I think typically people confuse the expression of a brand with the brand itself. And what I mean by that is people think a brand is your logo, you know, or maybe if they have a slightly more sophisticated understanding, it's your logo and your colors and your fonts, you know, and, and your mm -hmm. photography, right? Um, your tagline. But for us, while all of those elements are incredibly important, ultimately they're meaningless if they're not standing for an idea. And that idea is what we think of as brand. It's really about defining what does this business stand for at its core? Not just what's a functional description of what the business does, but truly what does it stand for and what emotion can it evoke in people? And then how do we bring that to life through design choices, language, the entire consumer experience? Our belief is that brand should be a lens through which you're evaluating every single choice you make and consumers should feel it not just when they're looking at packaging, but when they're interacting with customer service, when they're using the product, like that is all brand. And, and um, if I think about a brand being developed, how much of it is controllable by, by the, the company, by the organization versus um, a product of how that idea interacts with the audience? You know, how, how much is top down versus bottoms up almost? Well, I think the most exciting shift that we've seen over the past decade is exactly what you just asked. I think it used to be very top down and sort of blasted out. And now that power dynamic completely turning on its head. You know, consumers have more ability to influence what a brand is and what it means than ever before, which is partly why I wrote this book, because I think so many rules are changing as a result of that shift. I mean, even just the fact that if you're unhappy with a company now, you can tweet about it. We didn't used to have a platform like that. As We had no way. You just sat there in frustration on hold for three hours. I would tell my TiVo. <laughs> <laughs> Your TiVo probably listening. <laughs> Uh, and and so if, if we're seeing this shift, um, you know, in in a consumer or in the public's ability to interact with a, a brand and and maybe even shape or influence in some ways um, the way others receive it, uh, what does that mean for new ventures and, and new startups uh, as as they start to think about? you know, the, the idea of what they are, both from a brand perspective as well as from a, um, a product or a process perspective? How, what, what's changing now, given, given this environment? I think the smart brands see this shift as an opportunity. You know, I think it can feel very scary because you're letting go of control. You know, you're putting images out there and people can react to them however the way they want. They can take them and repurpose them. They can call you out if they're angry about something that you've done. But it also means that the ability to build a deeper and more meaningful relationship is so much greater because I think people feel more invested in the brands that invite them in and let them be part of the story. 
you know, and we see brands that do this really smartly, like even including their community in what features they should launch, what products they should come out with, how those products should work and function, you know, and, and making people part of that journey. You know, it's really interesting. And Anne, I'm sure you'll, uh, you're, you're probably drawing some of the same connections here. Uh, mm -hmm. One of our uh, semi-regular guests on the show is Henry Timms, who yes. is at the 92nd Street Y and now is um, running the, the Lincoln Center. Um, but Henry also uh, wrote a book called New Power and was one of the mm -hmm. founders of the Giving Tuesday movement. And and his notion of power in today's society is um, that power used to be uh, more of a currency, would be the metaphor that he uses, and something that people would hoard and, and only kind of dole out when necessary, that now power is um, a current mm -hmm. and it's something that needs to be given away and needs to be made accessible. And, and you know, he really cites his experience in, you know, kind of giving away over and over again the tools to Giving Tuesday um, as an example of the power of networks. And, you know, as I'm hearing you talk about brands and the role that uh, that the community can have in, in shaping and expanding and promoting a brand, um, it, it, it feels like there are some connections there for me. Um, you know, I... I so that that's actually just mostly me opining right now. <laughs> oh, it's so interesting. I, I know definitely, definitely going to read his book. That sounds fascinating and very relevant to the work we do. And maybe what uh, you make me think of as well, Jeff, is another um, uh, guest on our show and also uh, guest on other shows on SiriusXM channel 132. And that is the notion of customer centricity. In other words, that not all, not all consumers are equal. <laughs> so there's a degree to which the company selects and privileges certain consumers over others. So there, there is a two-way street. The community has something to say about the brand and the organization. And the organization also is selective about who uh, is part of the community. So, um, are you seeing that as well, Emily, in your work? Well, I think that it wants to have a hypothesis about who your brand champions are going to be. You know, who mm -hmm. are the people that are going to love you most and make sure that at least out of the gate, they're who you have in mind when you're making choices. You know, even if it's just about a mindset, it doesn't necessarily need to be about a specific demographic. In fact, we try to steer our brands away from becoming too narrow about, you know, this is for a 27-year-old woman living in the suburbs, right? I think it's mm -hmm. more about a set of values and beliefs and needs that the brand can really craft itself for. Um, but I also think on the flip side, you know, we're seeing brands hopefully embrace the idea of inclusivity more and more and more. And I think that we can achieve both of those things simultaneously. I don't think that having a specific target audience necessarily means that you're exclusive. I think it just means that you're truly serving the needs of the people that you most need to reach, um, but can also create, you know, an embracing open community. Um. Anne, why don't we bring you uh, back into the conversation? All right. 
Actually, I was going to, again, I'm on this track of getting some concrete examples. So I'm wondering, Emily, if you could give us an example of a brand that uh, meets your criteria, is uh, thoughtful about the values of the customers that the brand would like to attract, and has the kind of uh, partnership that you're hoping for. So what, what can give me an example of a company that comes to mind? Yeah, I, I would love to bring up actually one of our clients. Um, it's a brand called Henning, H-E-N-N-I-N-G. And this is a luxury plus size fashion brand hmm. launched by an incredible entrepreneur. Her name is Lauren Chan and she had spent years at Glamour um, on the plus size beat and also was a former plus size model. And through that experience, I think she learned so much about the pain points of being a plus size woman who wants to engage in fashion. And mm -hmm. she felt she was actually held back in her career because she was working in the fashion industry and saw again and again her coworkers wearing, you know, incredibly high end brands. And she was relegated to sort of cheaper, fast fashion because the high end luxury brands simply didn't make clothes in her size. Mm -hmm. So I think this is an example of a woman who launched a business, you know, directly out of her own experiences and seeing what was missing and seeing all the ways that it affected her life beyond just not having something that she wanted to buy, right? Like it really affected confidence and her ability to get ahead in the professional world. Um, so I think right there, you know, that's an incredibly important principle that we're always looking for is a brand that's solving a real problem. You know, and not a self-serving problem. I think a lot of times we'll meet entrepreneurs and the problem they're solving is that they hate their job in banking, um, but that they haven't really thought about, you know, what does the world need that, that doesn't exist right now? And then I think, you know, to get around to answering your question, what Lauren has done phenomenally is really engaged her community in the formation of her business. You know, she went live with this idea before the business launched which is not something that we always even recommend. We're always like, hey, you might wanna sort of stay under the radar until you're out there in the world and actually have something to sell. Mm -hmm. But Lauren insisted that it was incredibly important to bring her community on this journey with her and crowdsource ideas. Um, you know, she reached out to her community for sort of fit and sizing data. She reached out to them to understand, you know, what problems they faced and what they were sort of missing from the fashion world. And she already had this incredibly active, engaged audience that was eager to see what she was going to do and also forgiving when, you know, as any business does, it might stumble. Yeah. Oh, Emily, wonderful example. And maybe if I could just follow up and tie this to your book, Obsessed. You've, I love your chapter titles, Fear of Death, Elevate to the Emotional Sense of Self, Creating Connections, Strength and Focus, Redefine Expectations, embrace tension and make it personal. Is there a particular, um, does she illustrate one of those major points that you make in your book? And if so, which one? Yeah, actually I, I write about Lauren in the last chapter, make it personal, because I think she's someone that has incredibly artfully navigated her role as founder with the brand as the brand, you know, and it's not like, her face appears every time, you know, on every Instagram post, right? But she's right. been able to be forward facing about why she started this business. And she's someone that her community 
admires and mm-hmm. so can approach. Um, so I think she's done that really, really well. And I think without her and without her story, the brand wouldn't be nearly as resonant. You know, I think there are plus size brands and it's very obvious they were by, you know, older white men in the fashion industry. I think the more people who are, you know, thinking about size inclusivity, the better. But with Lauren, it really is personal and you feel that when you engage with the brand. Oh, so good. Maybe just one more from me and then back to Jeff. Um, I love the I love the uh, first chapter and the first title, Fear of Death. Can you talk a little bit more about that in relationship to brand? Yes, and definitely, you know, there's a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek nature to that title, but what that comes from is this idea I have that I push my team on all the time, which is that when you think you know the problem that you're solving for people. You have to keep going deeper. You have to keep saying, okay, I think this is the problem, but why does that matter? Why does that matter? And the only place where you know you've gone deep enough is when you get to fear of death, because ultimately our sense of our own mortality is what influences every choice we make as humans. Uh, Now, obviously we are not building most of our brands around the idea that people are afraid to die, but I do think that, you know, To use an example that I bring up in the book, um, I talk Airbnb and how, you know, you might think on the surface, the problem that business is solving is that people need a cheaper alternative to hotel rooms, but that's not actually the problem it's solving. And if you keep digging deeper, it turns out that it's really about having um, a need to belong and that when you travel, you don't want to feel like an outsider. You want to feel that you're part of the place that you're visiting and to tie it back to fear of death, you know, it's like, okay, well, why do you want to feel that? You know, it's because you want all of your experiences to count. And why do you want to feel that? It's because ultimately you're going to die. <laughs> all right, Jeff, I'm sorry. One more from me, then back to you. Back to you. So again, do you have a certain rubric that you use as an organization in order to dig deeper? Is it just simply keep asking why, or do you have other uh, suggestions that listeners might uh, appreciate hearing? We really believe in the power of qualitative research. And I think that a lot of entrepreneurs who are very data-driven people tend to research, meaning like, let's do a survey and get percentages and know that, you know, the data backs up our reasons and great and so useful But for me, I think there's no substitute for actually talking to people. And, you know, you're not going to talk to a thousand people and say, you know, 30% think this, but you can talk to 10 people and learn so much just from really listening and listening Mm -hmm. beneath the surface of what they're saying. You know, I Mm -hmm. think people might tell you one thing, but skilled at research, you can understand like what's behind this and coming asking why. It's like, well, why do they feel this way? And what's really driving these feelings? Oh, so good. I may have to have you come into one of my classes and talk to my students about that because on their consulting projects, they get very, very focused. These are undergrads. They get very focused on the numbers and often lose sight of the value of qualitative feedback. They can give you a little depth, a little more meaning behind all of those numbers. So thank you, Emily. <laughs> I would love to talk to your class and it would be an honor. Oh, thank you. All right, Jeff. All right, well, let me remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. 
Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Jeff Klein, and I'm here with Ann Greenhall uh, talking today with Emily Hayward. And Emily is the founder and chief brand officer of Red Antler and author of the new book, Obsessed, Building a Brand People Love from Day One. Um, Emily, maybe, uh, Anne, having secured your services for the classroom, um, maybe I'll, I'll sort of stay in that extended world. Um, you know, most of my work is with our MBA population uh, at Wharton. And, you know, I, I think back on some of the entrepreneurs and some of the organizations that have come out of the school um, over the last 10 years. Um, and, and I'm thinking about places like Warby Parker or Cotopaxi or Allbirds. Um, and, and these are all companies that have um, very explicitly and very deeply, um, you know, incorporated social, um, you know, social commitments um, into their business model, yeah. whether it's around sustainability in the case of Allbirds or um, Vision in the case of Warby Parker. Um, why do we see more and more businesses um, explicitly linking their work to um, social causes? What, what role does that play within the brand? I think that it goes back to the conversation about consumers having more information, more choices, and more power. And I think that consumers are finally in a position where they can demand um, a level of, of social responsibility and social engagement because they're able to. You know, it used to be that you had no choice but to buy what was offered to you in the store and you didn't even really learn about brands other than the ones that were advertising on TV. You know, now we're seeing, if you think about, you know, cleaning products, right? It used to be you just bought whatever your mom bought because that was all there was. Now you can dig into, you know, what's in this product and is it safe for my family and what's the packaging solution and am I contributing to plastic waste? Hmm. So much more opportunity to make choices that reflect your values, which means that businesses need to reflect the value of consumers. If they don't, people are going to move on. Yeah. And and so with that in mind, then if there are uh, if there may be well, I guess either new ventures or you know more established organizations, and and they're looking at their brand and, and feeling like it is not um, it's not either drawing the reaction from the public that they hope, or they're getting signals from the the public that are are different than their own experience of, you know, their idea, their brand. Um, is it possible to rebrand? This seemed, I, I didn't think absolutely. that was like a metaphysical That's, question, but it's you know. a it is fun question. absolutely possible. And I, even though, you know, my book is about from day one, I always emphasize it is never too late to start doing the right thing. And I think that there's, <laughs> Plenty of businesses who have been able to create a new sense of rest among their consumers. Um, mm. You know, I think that, look, it, it takes time and it takes an internal commitment to risk. You know, I think that the reason why a lot of businesses fail to adapt with the times is less about consumer perception and more because internally they're afraid of doing anything beyond an incremental change. Um, mm. 
but I think that, you know, if with the right leadership and the right commitment mm -hmm. to sort of, we have to do this or we're going to get left behind, it's totally doable. Okay. All right. So, so in branding as in life, today is always the first day of the rest of your life. Right. So today. Yeah. But I would say, you know, like, I don't think the solution is, you know, like what Tropicana did just to like put a new label on it. Right. Like mm -hmm. people hated that, you know, I think it has to start from within. And um, I want to uh, pass this back to you in a moment here. And um, but, but I do want to link in this question then of, you know, in in a disrupted environment like the one that businesses are currently operating in, you know, um, first three months of a pandemic, which has fundam fundamentally changed the way we all interact with each other, not just the way businesses interact with each other. And now, you know, with the protests against racial injustice, you know, kind of sweeping the, the country, uh, what is... What does this kind of disruption mean for the relationships, you know, between companies and, and their consumers or and the public? How, how do you maintain connection in times of great disruption? You know, you see a lot of headlines about, you know, it'll never be the same. And I actually think, you know, I think we need to treat both of those events very differently. You know, they're not the same in terms of what they mean for brands. They're not the same. Um, but there is a commonality, which I think is that brands need to be offering more value than they're asking for. You know, if you think about the, the early days of the pandemic, when we just spammy emails about how we're here for you, but there was no substance to them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like I'm dealing with a lot right. of emotions right now. I don't need to hear from you, brand that I bought one thing from three years ago. I don't care that you're here for me unless you're really giving me something of value. And I think that's a good general rule that was true before the pandemic. And I think it's certainly true now that brands, you know, rightfully know they need to stand against racial injustice. And I think it's far worse, the brands that are just completely remaining silent, but at the same time, your actions need to outweigh your words. You know, mm -hmm. it's okay to want to take credit for the good works that you're doing, and it's also important to acknowledge we're going through this historic moment that hopefully will have lasting long overdue impact, uh, but it can't be about just empty promises or pandering. And why don't we bring, yeah. bring you back in here? Oh, well, Jeff, you are heading in just the direction, and you mentioned the word leadership. <laughs> so, uh, Emily, since this is a show about leadership and action, what, what words of advice would you have for leaders of organizations as they think about the identity, the value, the, uh, the mission of their organizations in relationship to brand? I think it needs to start from within. And I think that your employees across every part of your business, not just the corporate office, are your most important consumers. And if you're going to stand for something externally, everyone who works at your company needs to feel that every single day. Or eventually it's going to come out and it's going to erode any goodwill that you've built with the public around, you know, aligning yourself with, with their beliefs and their values. Oh, so good. So again, maybe an illustration of that example. 
Yeah, I mean, I think we we worked with a company called Boxed, and that business is all about you know making people's ultimately. You know, they sell bulk goods, um, mobile first. So you know, instead of having to spend your Saturday at the club store, you know, you can just order a ton of toilet paper from your home. Something that people really appreciate, especially right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that you know the CEO of that company. Jay has done an incredible job of making his employees' lives easier and and have them feel, you know, more value from the company. You know, he's pledged to pay for kids' college. Um, They have, you know, just incredibly generous Mm -hmm. benefits. You know, I think, again, it's about, you know, if you're all about sort of making the lives of American households easier, you need to be doing that for your team. And right. the people who work there like love working there, and they're an incredible group of people. Yeah, yeah. And um, Jeff and I always find this show very therapeutic. <laughs> and I know, just in your words here, uh, I know that I'm thoughtful, and I bet Jeff is as well. We work for a university. A university is a learning organization, and we are part of that uh, larger organization. So if we as those who are leading the organization, if we don't value learning and enable people to pursue learning in whatever shape or form that happens, then we're really undermining one of the core values of the leadership program and the university at large. So it's easier said than done, (laughs) but I very much appreciate what you're saying, your answer to leaders, that it starts from within. Jeff is nodding. Humbly. <laughs> I, thought, I, I thought we were doing the, the sort of internal therapeutic technique. <laughs> we are. Okay. All right. We also heard from another guest that leadership is an act of forgiveness, <laughs> which we constantly give to each other. <laughs> Very important. So I have, um, uh, we're, we're starting to get to the end of our time here. Um, but I, so I, I'm going to ask you a question now that I would, I would kind of normally ask earlier in the show. You know, for our listeners who are walking around, they're, they're cultivating an idea. Um, they've got a product that they want to bring to market, you know, but they're, they're in this, you know, ideation kind of phase. Um, what are some of the things that you would encourage them to be thinking about now um, as they, you know, move towards launching a, a business? How do they keep brand really um, in central focus? So I think it's about really determining, you know, with all the things that entrepreneurs are thinking about in their mind. I mean, usually when we meet founders, it's not like they don't have to say, right? They have too much to say. They have too many ideas about why their business is important and how it's going to work. And not only, you know, what is it, what's it going to be in 10 years and how is it going to change the world? I think it's about taking all of those thoughts and reasons and finding a way to ladder them up to one core central idea for what this business stands for and holding that idea, you know, in your mind as you're making choices and as you're thinking about what to prioritize and as you're thinking about sort of ultimately how you're going to go to market, you know, having a really clear sense of that purpose. And then from there, I would say it's about recognizing like you're not going to do this alone. Um, I think the best founders I know, well, tend to have co-founders, but if that's not in the cards, at least surround themselves with other people 
know more than they do and they recognize external expertise and you know, value other I think the one the founders who think that be, part of being a good founder is having all the answers I don't see them ultimately succeeding nearly as much as the people who have that humility and curiosity and desire to learn well Emily um we want to thank you so much for joining the show today. We've really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you. Talking to both um, of you. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. And if our listeners want to find out more about the the book or learn more about Red Antler, um, where would you direct them? They can go to my website, which is Emily Hayward H E Y W A R D dot com, and that will link out both to the book and Red Antler. Okay, great. Thanks so much. And and we've got um, uh, just a probably a moment or two here to do a quick after action review. Um, this is our uh, weekly ritual, which allows us to consolidate a bit of the learning here. Um, what is it that you will take with you from this conversation and for, for further pondering? Yeah, well, I think, Jeff, I'm going to start with uh, Emily's comment about brand and ask in response to your really very fundamental marketing 101 question, what is brand? And I think it is tempting to think of it in a very superficial way uh, in terms of logos and, you know, print advertisements or media, social media. But I think Emily's really helped me understand how tied brand is to identity. You know, who, mm -hmm. who are we as an organization? What are our values? And that every act is an expression of brand. And that is true internally within the organization. Emily answered one of my questions, just stressing the importance of living your brand internally in relationship to your employees. So I think it's it sounds superficial brand, but it's actually much more profound. So I appreciate your question and Emily's response. All right, th thanks, Anne. Um, and to that, I think I would add, you know, the importance of recognizing that there is uh, both a cognitive aspect and an emotional aspect to brand and yeah. to core ideas um, within a company, within an organization. Uh, so often we speak in the cognitive language and, and we forget the, the deep research and the rich insight that comes from adding an emotional lens. Fear of death. <laughs> Yeah, for our listeners then, we'll say thanks so much for joining us. Um, if you have a question about something you heard on today's show, please email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Be sure to follow our show on Twitter at SXMBusiness. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.